0: If you're willing and brave, uh, we'd like you to, uh, to take a chance and just uh, meet us. Now, we have a couple of milestones uh, that we want to acknowledge and uh, mention today. We've got some birthdays. You know who you are. But we also, uh, Steve and the Reba, are celebrating 56 years of marriage today. 56. So... El Reba, you show us what it means to be a godly saint. <laughs> we're grateful for you and uh, for you both and uh, for that example and that encouragement. Yeah, just a quick, uh, so we're we're getting rid of a Church Community Builder. Uh, we're going to Breeze, and so that's why you have to be invited to come in to the new platform and the new system. We're going to roll those invites out uh, across the way. So if you don't exactly get one this week... Uh, it just means we haven't gotten to you in the alphabet yet, so uh, be looking for those emails, check your spam boxes and all that good stuff. We're, we uh, we expect and we hope that this is going to be a lot easier system for us to use. Now, we're in a series of messages, and what we're doing is we're looking at the work that grace does in our lives, and we started a series last week from the Apostle Paul's a short letter to a young man by the name of Titus, and we're going to dig into the teaching that we find there. Paul writes this letter to Titus because he's encouraging Titus to let the gospel, to dig into the deep work of the gospel to counter the challenge of legalism and relativism. Now, in your bulletin, I think it's on the back page, you'll find some working definitions of the gospel from the book Shaped by the Gospel by Timothy Keller. So we're, we're focusing on the summary statement, and we're going to see how this actually comes from this text in Titus that says the gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into a right relationship with Him and eventually to the, destroy the results of all sin in the world. So that's the working definition that we're having when we talk about the deep work of the gospel and what the gospel is trying to accomplish. Now, in the letter of Titus, we also find two of the longest run-on sentences in the Bible. You don't necessarily catch this in English translations of the Bible because when the Bible translators put it out, they actually add punctuation and grammar and good things like that. And, and the Apostle Paul, he is the undisputed king of the run-on sentence, right? I mean, this is a stylistic thing that we notice of him. But here in Titus, comma, he outdoes himself, period. The NCV, which I'm getting ready to read from, doesn't treat these two sections of Scripture as two run-on sentences. As I said, it, it punctuates them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do something that's really difficult I'm going to ask you to ignore what your English teacher said and throw all rules of grammar and punctuation out the window, okay? I know it's hard, so as I read this to you, I'm going to read two sections of Scripture. The first one is found in Titus chapter 2, and your verses will show it as 11 through 14, and the second one is Titus 3, 4 through 8. So grammarians and librarians, cover your ears as we get ready to read God's Word. Titus chapter 2, I'll start in verse 11. That is the way we should live because God's grace that can save everyone has come. It teaches us not to live against God nor to do the evil things the world wants to do. Instead, that grace teaches us to live now in a wise and right way and in a way that shows we serve God. We should live like that while we wait for our great hope and the coming of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to skip down to chapter 3 and verse 4, which says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, He saved us because of His mercy. It was not because of good deeds that we did to be right with Him. He saved us through the washing that made us new people through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior being made right with God by His grace, we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, would you be with us this morning as we open your Word? I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the truth you have for us. We pray through Christ. Amen. Now, uh, both of these sentences, they're both just packed full with a, a rich and robust, a complex and complete theology. They're just packed. I mean, they're, they're, they're dense. And, and even in their density, you are my density, even in this, they are really the most concise explanation of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible. I mean, those two sentences right there are the most concise explanation of what the gospel is and what the gospel is doing. Now, um, when it comes to to messages and Bible study and and classes, uh, sometimes the, 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 the temptation is to just hop in, let's just cover everything there. It's usually something that I I try to keep in mind and and think about. So when we come to something like this, you notice, especially how they're run on sentences, there's no real any place to break or or breathe. So I want to do this as I want to treat them in a different way. Now, has anybody besides Braden ever been to a Lego store? Right? You know that bin in the Lego store where as many Legos as you can cram into one bag, it's the same price? Right? Our kids love that, that station, right? And so the temptation is when we come to a passage like this is let's just cover it all, right? Let's cram it all in because, I mean, it's, for, it's one price, right? So what I want to do instead is I want to look at these concepts that we find in these two really long sentences. I want to treat them as one Lego at a time. And I want to look at the Lego in the two sides, that we see here in this passage. So, this morning, let's take a closer look at verse 11, and which says, That is the way we should live because God's grace that can save everyone has come. I want to read to you one more time. That is the way we should live because God's grace that can save everyone has come. Now, as I mentioned, Titus, in his work in this city of Crete, in this new church, was a brand new church, he is immediately faced with a challenge from legalism. And essentially, legalism, it opposes the gospel, it opposes grace, because legalism opposes salvation by grace through faith. Uh, legalism says you must believe and live right to be saved. But the other challenge that Titus faces is the challenge of what we would know as relativism. And relativism opposes the gospel. It opposes uh, the grace because it opposes rules and restrictions of any kind. So whereas legalism opposes a certain thing, relativism pretty much opposes any rules or restrictions of any kind. And so in this way, it takes advantage of grace. Relativism says God loves everyone just as they are. Now, the gospel is giving us a different way to live. It's giving us a different motivation. The gospel does two things. First, it focuses on the work of grace in our lives. It acknowledges and accepts that grace is working to do four things in our lives. It's working to humble us. It's working to affirm us. Grace is working to save us, but grace is also working to shape us. This is the deep work of the gospel that is accomplished through grace. But then secondly, what we learn, especially as we start digging into this teaching, is that the response which grace demands of our lives. Now, you thought it was unusual and when we started this series to use the word work and grace in the same sentence, we kind of feel uneasy when we say the word grace and demand also in that same sentence. Now, the first main idea that you're going to find here expressed in verse 11 can be summarized in this statement. Grace makes an ethical demand on those who believe. I'm going to say it again grace makes an ethical demand on those who believe this is what paul is conveying to titus you notice that is the way we should live now that particular clause which is the one side of the lego it's actually a bridge clause or a transition clause see what is happening is that 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 paul has just written Uh, quite a bit to Titus about the way leaders should conduct themselves, about how they should lead in this new church. And he moves from a discussion to leaders, and he essentially covers every single person that would be part of that church. And so, he gives instructions for every Christian that's in that church in Crete. Now, if you read through chapter 1, you're going to discover that there are some specific directed and targeted instructions as to the behavior and conduct of those who were Christians. Now, what Paul does is he starts and says, to the old men, I say this, and you know who you are. To the less younger women, you know who you are. To the young men, and he he just goes right down the list, older men, older women, younger men, younger men, and servants. I mean, if you throw in all ye floods and dragons all, you've got your makings of a good hymn that we sing. But in chapter 1, he goes through each one of those and says, Now, if you're in this stage in your life, if you're in this situation, here is the conduct that grace demands of you. And Paul is very specific to say that, that you're acting this way, you're behaving this way, not to earn or deserve salvation. That we're acting this way, that we're, we're paying attention to our behavior, that grace puts this ethical demand on our lives because we have been saved. And this is what the second run-on sentence, starting in Titus chapter 3, goes to great lengths to explain, not deeds that we have done but it's by the accomplished work of Jesus. Now, the legalists in the crowd would have heard this and would have pointed to chapter 1 and would have said, see, behavior is a mandate to be saved. You have to behave a certain way if you're going to be saved. And and then the relativists among them, they wouldn't have even considered these instructions, they would have listened to what Paul wrote to Titus and had nothing to do with it because they oppose rules or restrictions of any kind. But what Paul is doing here is he's using the gospel, he's using the deep work that grace does to challenge both of those positions of legalism and relativism. Because as those who believe in Jesus, as those who follow Jesus, there is an ethical demand on your behavior. Richard Rohr talks about that one of the tragedies, one of the crises that we face in the church today is that there is relatively no difference in the lives of those who are in church and those who are not in church, that there's no difference. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus and saying, listen, in this brand new work you have to understand that grace is teaching us, that grace makes an ethical demand on the lives of those who believe. Now let's see how he does this. If we look at this verse again, that is the way we should live. So that's that bridge clause, that transition statement All that teaching that he gave about how you should act, how you should behave, it's summarized in that first clause. That is the way we should live. Now look at the second clause. Because God's grace that can save everyone has come. He's saying we live like this because God's grace that can save everyone has come. So this first challenge in verse 11 is challenging relativism saying there is a behavior that you have to pay attention to, but you notice the second clause is challenging legalism. Now, depending on what translation you're reading out of, it's going to be using different words, but you notice that it's always a past tense, historical. He says you're not waiting for it to come. You're not working for it so that it will arrive. He's saying, no, it already has come. Because you already have this, then comes this ethical demand. Now, what I find fascinating about the Lego is now that we're flipping it over and we're looking at a really interesting side of what grace is all about. Paul is teaching Titus, and he's teaching us two things about grace here. The first thing he's teaching us is that grace is an epiphany. It's an epiphany. That's a really fun word, epiphany go ahead say it. It rolls off the tongue really well, you know, epiphany. Um, now, what's unusual is that in the Greek version of the Bible, the grammar in this sentence is reversed. And, and Paul is using a very specific... See, our English... In this second clause, our English Bibles, depending on your translation, say, because God's grace that can save everyone has come. But the Greek Bible... Flips the words in the sentence and it starts with the Greek word epiphano, and it's what the word we get epiphany from. Paul says, literally appeared for the grace of God, saving to all men. That's what it literally says. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, why? Because the Greek is trying to make an emphasis on that word. Epiphany. It's trying to make an emphasis on appearing. It's trying to show that as the basis of what's happening, of what has come before, and what is happening next. Now, when we use the word epiphany, we use it in the context of you know it's our light bulb. It's our light bulb moment, right? I just had an epiphany, right? So so for example, uh, I kept trying to find larger and larger and larger and larger print Bibles. And then I had an epiphany. Maybe I should get my eyes checked. Right? I was like, you know, hey, it only takes me a couple of years. Right? It was this light bulb moment. I'm like, I hadn't thought of it before. Huh, I wonder if I should get my eyes checked. Right? Because I'm, I mean, like I'm wheeling my Bible in on a cart now. Right? Because it's it's so big. How big is it? It's so big he has to wheel it in on a cart. So that's the concept that we have when we think of the word epiphany, and there is a sense to which that is part of the definition, but what it really means is to reveal something that was previously unknown or hidden. That which is unknown is now known, that which was hidden is now revealed. So Paul is using this word, this construct to set up this entire discussion about how grace works in our life. It's a moment of sudden revelation or insight. The point that he's trying to make in his grammar, in the way he chooses the tense, he's trying to say salvation is a historical reality. It's a historical reality that the grace of God that can save everyone has come. So it's not something that you're working for. It has come. Now, Paul uses this same Greek word, the word which we get the word epiphany, he uses it three times in his writings. Now, he uses it twice in Titus in both of these sentences, but the other time he uses it, it's fascinating. And it really is a good example and a good metaphor of what we're talking about, of the grace of God appearing. Okay, so it's in Acts chapter 27, and here Paul is describing a harrowing storm, this voyage through the storm while he was on the sea and could hear the terrible roaring. Now, can anybody tell me where they are when they face this storm? The island of Crete is where they are. So, do you see why I'm worried about the harvesters going on a cruise to Crete? Oh, that was much better. Thank you. That was much better. I mean, even the Apostle Paul thinks it's a bad idea. Now, in Acts chapter 27, depending on your Bible translation, the New Century Version says in verse 20, When we could not see the sun or the stars for many days, and the storm was very bad, we lost all hope of being saved. Okay, so remember the New Century Version is a children's version of the Bible. The English Standard Version says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, Paul is using the exact same word here, epiphany. The word epiphany is the word that he's using. And look at how this is a perfect, an absolutely perfect description and example of salvation by grace. It's such a great metaphor because in the darkness and desolation of our storm, because of sin, when we had no hope of rescue and and, and, and of, of being saved, what happens? The grace of God appears. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, when we were unable to help ourselves, At the right time, Christ died for us, though we were living against God. Oh, don't you see? It's so important to see that that the grace of God's salvation doesn't appear in your life when you've got it all together. In the depravity of our condition, we had no hope of being saved. We were enemies of God. Our life was in rebellion against Him, and then the grace of God appeared. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows His great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. In the darkness and desolation of our depravity because of the love and the mercy, the compassion of God, God's grace, Paul says, that can save everyone appeared. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God's mercy is great and He loved us very much. Though we were spiritually dead because of the things that we did against God, He gave us new life with Christ. You have been saved by God's grace. Oh, you need to say that over and over and over and over. Saying that phrase, repeating that phrase is allowing the gospel to work in your heart. That I have been saved by God's grace. So the first thing that Paul says about grace which saves us, it's that the, it is the epiphany of God. It is the appearing of God. Now, the second thing that he says about grace is a, a word about the efficacy of grace. Now, he says in verse 11, because God's grace that can save everyone has come. Now, what he talks about here is that grace has the power or the efficacy to save everyone. And what this statement that Paul makes, it's it's a reflection of the heart of God, right? Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that God our Savior desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him... See, this is the heart of God. The heart of God is for all people to be saved. But the tragic part is that we know that not all people will be saved. So, when Paul says that the grace of God can save everyone, he's not saying that the grace of God will save everyone. Okay, listen close. The salvation which grace brings to all people is not some kind of universalist salvation. In other words, it's challenging the position that it doesn't matter what path you choose, it doesn't matter which direction you go, it doesn't matter who you follow, that eventually all paths will lead to God. That's not true. Grace that can save everyone is explaining the sufficiency of grace. It's Paul's way of saying that salvation by grace through faith is available to all, but not accepted by all. Now, you think about the reasons that people have today for not accepting Jesus as their Savior, for not coming in faith to God and receiving this grace which He has so freely given. And you think about the myriad of reasons why, why, well, some people just don't believe in God. They don't believe in this offer. They don't see a need in their life for this kind of salvation. But sometimes it's because people have an acute awareness of the truth that we're exploring. Sometimes people do not accept Christ as Savior, do not accept Him as Lord, because they know exactly what that demands. They understand sometimes in ways better than us who have been in church for a long time the ethical demand that grace makes on their life. This is one of the harder things for many people to accept today. I mean, and, and, and not even, you know, not even presenting salvation as, a, as, a, as the promise of a reward in heaven or, or, or salvation as a preemptive pass from the fires of Bakersfield. I mean, that doesn't even help people these days. It's because they understand that if you receive salvation by faith, then you're surrendering your will and your way to God. You're giving Him all rights and privileges, therefore appertaining. For those who fully have considered this implication, the demand that grace makes on the lives of those who are saved, their refusal to come to Jesus Christ is not an uninformed decision. It's an informed decision, because if God is my God, and if Jesus is my Lord… And if the Holy Spirit is my teacher, he controls my money, he controls my time, he controls my endeavors, he controls my adventures, and this is just way too much control for some people to give over. It's a refusal or rejection of Jesus because of the ethical demands that grace makes in the lives of those who are saved. But when you look at the people who profess Christianity, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and you look at their anti Jesus way behavior, they've claimed Christ with their lips, but they're rejecting the claims of Christ on their heart. They're refusing the ethical demand that grace makes on a believer. This kind of person is the person who wants a grace that saves them, but doesn't want a grace that changes them. They want salvation, but they don't want transformation. They don't want this ethical demand that grace places on their life. <clears throat> so when we come to this teaching, when we come to this, man, it's heavy, it's hard. Because His grace is calling us to live as different people. Grace is calling us to have a moral compass, to have an ethical standard, to be different in our behavior and our conduct, to love those who are against us, as we saw in the video today. Ultimately, the teaching in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the appearing, ultimate, this. Is a representation or a reference to Jesus Christ. This is who Paul is talking about that Jesus is the epiphany of God by which we receive salvation. We sing in the Christmas song, now in flesh appearing. There's a reason that the Christmas season is also known as epiphany because it's the arrival of Jesus, it's the appearing the only way that we are going to allow ourselves to accept the demand of grace that is placed on our life is if we're drawn and captured by the life of Jesus. It's the only way. This is why as a church we are so focused right now, we are trying to be so laser focused on practicing the way of Jesus. Because we know that this is the only way that grace is going to do its work in our heart, is if we say, okay, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. The only way that we're going to be drawn into this and let grace begin to change us is if we're captured by the beauty of Jesus. As the Bible says, when we see Jesus as the one who has appeared to take away our sins. So how do we understand grace? It's in the person of Jesus. It's in His life. It's His death. It's His burial. It's His resurrection. It's how He gave Himself for us. We see that He has done this for us, and our heart is captured by this grace. The life that Jesus lived, the death that He died, it breaks the barrier between us and God. It cancels the weight of sin. It defeats the claim of death. It gives us the motivation that we need to live for Him. Let's pray. Father, I ask in this moment that your Holy Spirit, which is present with us, that it convict our hearts, that it apply this teaching to our lives. For those who are overwhelmed by guilt and shame, we ask for an epiphany of grace a word of grace to affirm them. For those who are overwhelmed by their own goodness, we ask for an epiphany of grace, a word of grace to humble. And as we repent of our sin and as we repent of our righteousness, we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we yield our way, our will, and our heart to the demand of grace as those who follow You. Through Jesus our Savior, and the holy spirit our teacher we pray amen